our system is in too many ways broken. The way we see the world shapes the way that we treat it. I'm George Lavender, and this is Making Contact. January 17th of this year, 2014, was a beautiful awakening. It was a beautiful sunny day. The bay looked beautiful. The weather was beautiful. It was exciting. After 16 years, Monte Kevin Tyndall was released from San Quentin State Prison. But at the same time, I was very, very apprehensive because now, 16 years later, I'm finna get my life back. I'm finna start on a new journey. What were you apprehensive about? Life. You know, uh, where I'm going to live. How is my family going to react? Is the support system that I built up in San Quentin, are they really going to be there? American prisons release more than 650,000 people into society every year. That's the equivalent of the entire population of Memphis or Boston. On this edition of Making Contact, producer Aaron Mendelson follows Kevin Tyndall on his journey out of prison. When Kevin talks about leaving prison, he's describing something that's happened more than 16 million times since 1978. 16 million times an American has been released from state or federal prison and gone back to society asking these questions. But success rates for ex-prisoners are low. Nationally, about two out of three go back to prison within a year. For Monte Kevin Tyndall, this is his sixth time getting out of prison. How do you reclaim life after prison? and navigate issues like housing, support, and money. This is Kevin's story. My name is Monte Kevin Tyndall. Tyndall goes by Kevin for the most part. I'm a 52-year-old black African that has been recently released in the last 35 days. From San Quentin State Prison, I was convicted and committed a crime of receiving stolen property. That charge earned Kevin a sentence of 25 to life under California's three strikes law. But he says his life's path was set decades earlier during a traumatic experience. Before Kevin talks about this experience, you may want to know that it's graphic and might want to switch the radio off if younger listeners are in the room. My mother had got raped. I was in the other room when this rape was occurring. And as I, as a nine, ten-year-old child, hearing this rape occur, uh, you know, you want to go save your mother. But my mother would, would, you know, when I'm saying mommy, I'm, you know, she's saying, no, baby, just stay in there, just stay in there. So I have to stay in the living room because I, I, I'm, what can I do? I was the man of the house. I'm supposed to protect my mother. And I couldn't. But then it was the, the thing, the family secret. So here goes a nine-year-old child holding this big old secret. I was traumatized deeply. I didn't know at the time. So months down the line, I got in my first trouble. I got arrested for the first time for stealing. But it wasn't just one incident. Growing up, Kevin moved around a lot, and there wasn't always food at home. The Los Angeles neighborhood he grew up in was tough. After he and his mom had moved to an area known as the Jungles, 
he committed his first robbery. I was looking out my back window one day, and I seen two young cats out in the back, about my age. They were robbing somebody. I came out and joined in. That was the first of many robberies. As Kevin got older, he became involved in a gang called the Black Peastones. He responded to the support system in the gang and the money. More than anything, he says, that money was his addiction. The crimes he committed sometimes landed him in jail. The one that put him away for 25 to life came after he'd been involved in a gang for years. It was 1998 in Orange County. Me and several friends went in there with a gun and robbed the jewelry store of their merchandise. Gold chains, diamond rings, and fancy watches. Kevin was caught and charged with receiving stolen property. That was his third strike. I was shocked. I was really uh, discombobulated. What was so shocking? I got 25 to life for receiving stolen property. And he wasn't young anymore. Okay, when I got this 25 to life, I'm 38, right? I've been part of a gang. I did a lot of bad things in my life. Uh, I shot people, got shot at. I did some bad, 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 heinous things in my life. It wasn't his first time in prison. Kevin knew the drill by now. He was just trying to do time. Trying to do time. And that means getting high, getting drunk, uh, messing with women. That was how we did our time. Doing that time isn't easy. Prisons are not, to say the least, nice places. A former governor of Massachusetts once said that prison should be a tour through the circles of hell. And California's prisons are notorious. In 2011, things had gotten bad enough that the Supreme Court ruled California's prisons were so overcrowded that it was cruel and unusual punishment. About three-quarters of prisoners are people of color, with black Californians incarcerated at the highest rates. Kevin Tyndall had bounced around California's prison system during his stay. He'd been to three different prisons in eight years. And when he came to San Quentin, he had some baggage. You know, I used to have a nickname called Killer Kev, right? And I was tired of that person. He won't really talk about why that was his nickname, just that people called him that. So by this time, after eight years behind bars, it's 2005. Kevin is in his 40s, and he feels like it's time for something different. I didn't want to be seen as this evil person, this bad person that I was, because I knew, like the butterfly, I was finna come out of my cocoon and morph into something else bigger and, and better and just greater. At San Quentin, he started showing up for programs and taking classes. Over the next eight years, he says he went through a personal transformation. But with a 25-year sentence, it was hard to see a future beyond prison. And then Prop 36 happened. Tonight, some 3,000 California inmates have one thing in common than they did not have yesterday, the possibility of freedom. Voters overwhelmingly decided to reform the state's three strikes law. The motive All of a sudden, money, Kevin was eligible for release from prison to go back to society again. Prisoners do not parachute in from outer space. Uh, they come from real communities, and they're going to go back to real communities. I'm Barry Crisberg. I'm a senior fellow at the Earl Warren Institute at UC Berkeley Law School. Barry Crisberg says that reentry isn't simple for prisoners or for society. It impacts everyone. The success of people coming out of prisons, really, it's not solely a humanitarian issue. It's really a public safety question. Because that person who has just 
come out of prison in the last couple of weeks, they're on the bus with you. Uh, they are uh, flipping hamburgers at McDonald's. They're in our community. They haven't disappeared. They're there. You know, if you spend five years in prison, and then what happens? They just dump you out in the streets. Where do you live? How do you, how do you survive? Uh, related to that is the issue of, of, of money. If you get the proverbial $200, how long does that last in this society? So what basics do we know about how to do reentry right? Prisoners do better if they have kept their connections to family members. So they get visitors. They write. They stay in some relationship to their, to their families. Uh, prisoners do better if they have a, a safe place to live. So increasingly, the proposal in a lot of places is to develop transitional housing. Basically, money, connections, and a place to live. That's similar to what Kevin Tyndall said was on his mind as he walked out the gates at San Quentin. Life, you know, uh, where I'm going to live, how is my family going to react, is the support system that I built up in San Quentin, are they really going to be there? When Kevin left San Quentin, he knew he didn't want to go back where he came from. I don't want to go back to L.A. because I've went back to L.A. five times after prison. I needed a change. I needed to be a part of something better. My grandfather used to give me an, uh, an analogy back in the day when I get out of prison. Hey, boy, you going back to jail? No, Grandpa, I'm going to try not to. He used to sit there and look at me. What you mean, try? Just like that, Grandpa, I ain't going back to jail. I'm going to try not to. Hmm, that's all he would say. And each time I got under prison, he would say that. And I'd keep saying, I'm going to try not to, Grandpa. What you tripping off? Why you keep asking me that? May he rest in peace. I didn't get that. When you get out, you get a lot of advice. My advice to them is to not take this transition lightly. This is really a life event. Seven out of 10 people that come out of jail and prison go back within three years. That's because there hasn't been an intervention. There hasn't, they haven't been given a safe place to transition. Uh, my name is Tom Gorham and I'm the clinical program director at Options Recovery Services. So one day I'm in school and I look up and there's a flyer on the wall. Option housing program for transitional housing. I write them and I tell them my story. And I tell them that I don't want to go back to Los Angeles. I need a chance. Options owns the house where Kevin now lives in Oakland, California. Options operates 10 of these houses. They're home to ex-prisoners and addicts. Residents have to go to Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, and anger management classes five days a week and have strict curfews. They also get drug tested. Tom Gorham says these measures keep it sober and safe at the house where Kevin lives. The house on 37th Street in Oakland is a, a very uh, grand old house, and it's well-kept. Um, it's right in the heart of Oakland um, on, on a very nice street, but in not too far from... Uh, an area where a lot of drug activity goes on. In front of the house, there's a few plants. A sign in the window says private property in bright orange letters. It looks like the other houses on this slightly rundown block. Hey, Jim. Morning, Kevin. 
Can I come in? When I arrive, Kevin is sitting at a desk next to the front door. He's got papers all over the table in front of him, things he wrote in prison. He gets up from the desk and gives a tour of the house. So this is our living room space. As you can see, we have a nice comfy chair that everybody battles over. As you can see here, if somebody is so inclined, they can come and play a piano. We have a piano here. I don't, I don't know how to play the piano, so I'm just gonna, Nothing? Nothing. I, I, here, you want to hear a tune? Sure. That's it. That's all you got. That's all I got. And is this a computer that you use? I don't know how to use a computer. I'm still, I, I need to learn. Uh, I just don't have enough time in the day. I, I have to make arrangements. As you can see, I, I was just writing. I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm prehistoric. I'm still used to writing things out because I don't know how to type yet. Is this the dinner bell? Oh yeah, we got a dinner bell. I never run that before. So this is the refrigerator I use. Those are my eggs down there, all my juices, my milk. Yeah. And this is our backyard. As you see, you got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven more bikes out here. You see our pear trees are in full bloom. Soon they say a gang of pears is gonna be on there and I'm gonna be able to have a pear fest. Nice, nice spacious backyard close to the freeway you can see the traffic running back and forth uh yeah yeah next kevin takes me upstairs to his room as we walk in one of his roommates is watching a daytime tv court show in his bunk so this is my neck of the woods i share this room with four people uh yeah that's my little shelf area with my little toiletries and little zuzus and wham-wham snacks, snacks, sneaky snacks. And that's my bunk. I'm on the upper bunk. So how does this feel in here compared to where you've been sleeping the last 16 years? Uh, heaven and hell. Okay, heaven and hell. Uh, I, I put it this way. It was hell sleeping in a, a four by eight cell. You know, even with four people, I'd much rather be here. Much rather be here. I'm able to do what I want to do now. I don't have a door or cell that's locked. If an earthquake comes, I can run out. When I want to go to sleep, I go to sleep. I don't have to worry about the cling of the bars. I don't have to worry about a guard. I don't, I don't have to worry about none of that no longer. You know, my worries now are different. Kevin does have issues with the house. There's not enough space, he says, with three other people in his room and 20 people in the house. Things like refrigerator shelves are hard to come by. And then there's the requirements that he go to programming every afternoon. Kevin says he only has to live in the house, and that going to classes every afternoon is, and these are his words, interfering with my success. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the US, Canada, Australia, and South Africa. 
To find out how to donate, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. We now return to Getting Out by Aaron Mendelson. Like most ex-prisoners, Kevin Tyndall needs a lot of help as he re-enters society. For Tom Gorham, who helps manage the transitional house where Kevin lives, it's both a place to live and a support system. What we do is keep people out of the criminal justice system and really the graveyard as well on some occasions. Unlike most ex-prisoners, when Kevin was released, he wasn't on probation or parole, which sounds good. It would be better, and I thought I'd never say this, it would be better if he was on parole because he'd have all these services. So he has literally nothing. He's just a citizen walking around. To get by, Kevin has to navigate the network of government support. He applied for general assistance, support for adults without dependents. It could help pay for his housing. Because like most people recently out of prison, Kevin doesn't work. Among ex-prisoners in California who are out on parole, less than one in four report that employment is where most of their money comes from during their first year out. Kevin gets some money from friends and from his aunt in L.A. Sometimes friends give him food. But he relies on support from the government. And a couple months into life on the outside, he's walking 20 blocks to downtown Oakland because he's having problems with that support. We're going to a general assistance building program to make sure I get everything taken care of. Because you were having problems with them. Yes. uh, I found out that... uh, I was not approved, and that was the problem with dealing with uh, the the reentry housing that I'm in. They're supposed to get paid. I'm supposed to pay them $350 a month. And being as though I don't have no job, it was really dependent upon me getting approved for general assistance in housing assistance. So that kind of put me in panic mode and like now I'm in panic mode because we're walking down here and I hope we get here by nine o'clock really I'm so used to being in a controlled environment in prison there's little things that go wrong but you don't have to worry about it because you still gonna have a, a roof a bed you're gonna still get fed Kevin keeps walking He doesn't want to take the bus because he's worried it won't come on time. When he gets to the county services building, across from an old Greyhound terminal, he calls his social worker. Hello? Oh, hi, Ms. Cheever. This is uh, Monte Kevin Tindall. I'm I'm out front right now. I'm finna come in the building. I got that paperwork that you requested that I fill out. He goes in and goes from window to window to meetings and orientations. The waiting room is an L-shaped space with brown and black chairs zip-tied to one another. Yes, I'm it's quickly filling up, and people seem restless, shuffling around their paperwork. After more than an hour, Kevin's done, and he starts to walk the 20 blocks back to his housing. Well, I went through uh, orientation where they explained to us uh, what the process was on getting health insurance and that type of coverage. So eventually uh, the counselor came. And he did the interview process, asked me a few questions. How was my medical, uh, mental, physical health? I explained to him that I'm having uh, anxiety moments. On the way back from the county building, Kevin says he feels like he's on the right track again. 
Eventually, his general assistance and medical support come through, but he winds up $400 in arrears to options, and his aunt has to step in and pay that money. After getting back to his transitional housing, Kevin and I sit on the stoop at front, and we start talking about a subject that doesn't make it into many academic papers, but that ex-prisoners think about a lot. Dating has been, uh, it has been rather, uh, odd, strange, uh, tense at moments. And, and people say that, you know, man, when you come out, you know, don't be in a rush to get in no relationship. And in the back of our heads, it's like, you got to be crazy, right? We finna go out here and, and have major sex and, you know, I'm finna go find me a good girl and whoop, 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 whoop. Do you think it's hard to find that or, or hard to introduce yourself to women as an ex-offender? Well, no, because I'm, I'm very upfront with uh, who I am and where I've been, you know, because I don't want to spring nothing on nobody. Uh, all of a sudden, we're in a relationship for two, three weeks, a month, and I say, oh, by the way, I just did 16 years. Right. Huh? No. So I want to be upfront with that. Uh, not only for their benefit, but I just need a person to understand that, you know, when you dealing with me, you dealing with a person that has them type of issues, that's just coming back out in society, that needs help. And if you don't know that this is what's going on, how do you know, well, okay, well, he's just coming back out to society. He needs me to drive him around here. He needs me to drive him around there. Uh, I might have to put a few dollars in his pocket. I might have to take him out to get clothes, food, whatever the case may be. I need all of that help. Those basics that Barry Crisberg mentioned, things like food, housing, and money, those extend even to dating. Like they say, it's complicated. Another issue that ex-prisoners come up against is just how much the world has changed and how quickly it's changing. Kevin spent most of his $200 in gate money on a cell phone, his first. He's getting the hang of it, but the first time I called him, he accidentally hung up. On a February afternoon, Kevin is at a park with other ex-prisoners. Dogs are running around and barking, and birds are cawing. Jerry Elster and Gordon Brown are passing his cell phone back and forth. Programs, you got Instagram there. It's not installed, though. We put games on here already, huh? <laughs> no, my, grand, uh, my granddaughter did that. <laughs> Them babies know how to Man, do it. That's what I gave her the phone thing, because she said, can I play a game? I said, yeah, just to let her, you know entertain herself in the back seat while he's driving. I didn't think she would know how to even cut the phone on. Man, she back there just going at it. They're still getting used to their phones. Brown has known Kevin since they were both teenagers. They were in different gangs. He was blood, I was crip. He and Kevin are both here for a program called Pathways to Resilience. The goal is to teach ex-prisoners permaculture skills. They also get a small stipend. Kevin's a participant and mentors some of the younger guys at the park. The ex-prisoners here are mostly black and Hispanic men. A few seem puzzled by the atmosphere at first, but most seem to embrace it and sing along. This event is about the intangibles that go along with things like money and housing. Things like releasing the past and connections. When the time comes for Kevin to burn a piece of paper and release that part of his past, he walks up and drops the paper into a gold-colored pot. 
I'm releasing the dehumanization of my soul. It no longer serves. Whoa. Okay, make sure it burns. Come this way, brother. We need a human arch. Can some people volunteer for the womb for them to come through? Kevin walks through this arch, which is supposed to be another re-entry from prison. Many days after Kevin goes to his options programming, he comes to an office in downtown Oakland. It's nothing but good people that just type, 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 type. <laughs> it's a place called Impact Hub Oakland, a bustling open building where dozens of young creative types sit in front of their laptops. The sun is streaming through the skylights here, and Kevin seems at ease, networking with people he walks by and catching up with others. Kevin shares office space here with five other people. It's simple, nothing on the walls, a few plants around the room. Unlike most of the people in this building, Kevin doesn't have a laptop, but he comes here to make phone calls and meet people, to work towards his dream. I want to be able to open up a re-entry facility for people coming out of prison. Most of these transitional houses now focus on alcohol and drug rehabilitation. That's cool. That's good. But I believe that there's one extra component in that, and that's to the betterment of a person's soul. I know that's what made me the man that I am today. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a, a, a going to NA or AA in San Quentin. It was about being able to go back and contact that little boy that had heard his mother getting raped and understanding that pain and understanding the pain that I caused other people. Deborah Mendoza is with Kevin at the Hub today. Mendoza is a former parole officer who works with ex-prisoners. People come out worse than they go in. And then when they come out, we expect them to do better. Even though you've been cut off from your loved ones, from society, you don't understand how things work anymore. Today, Deborah Mendoza and Kevin are waiting around. We're waiting for the young cat that's having a little problems in his life that needed uh, somebody to talk to. For now, they're just chatting, and Deborah worries that the young man hasn't been calling his parole officer. Sometimes people don't even understand these nuances that could help, help them be much more successful. So true, so true. It's like mm. playing the game the way that you're supposed to play the game. Not everyone knows the rules to the game. Exactly. And, then, and, and a lot of us aren't into following the rules of the game. So that's, that's the reality of it all. Uh, coming from the streets, uh, we don't follow rules. We make our own rules as we go. But that game has rules. It, that, exactly, so it's, exactly. So it's the game. But yeah, so you know what I mean? So you stay follow. out, yeah. So what I'm saying, there's rules to that game, though, too, the rules that you make up yourself. Mm -hmm. Oh, no doubt about that. No doubt about that. And sometimes you suffer through them rules. <laughs> yeah. They wait, but the young man doesn't answer his phone and doesn't show up. Eventually, Kevin does hear from the young guy. A friend of his was murdered in Oakland, so he fled town to stay safe. The rules of survival come first. Learning rules is what getting out is all about. Kevin Tyndall has left prison five times before and gone back each time. This time, he's in a new place trying new things. At the office, there's one thing in particular that he loves. 
I got a front window, I got a front window, I got a front window, I can look out on the boulevard. No, that's so amazing. I mean, because usually in prison, right, and this is a trip, any person that's doing time in prison, they wouldn't have a view. Now, on his sixth time out, he's struggling to keep that view. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. You've been listening to Getting Out by Aaron Mendelson. Special thanks to Claire Schoen and the University of California, Berkeley School of Journalism. Check out our website, radioproject.org, to get a podcast, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Quan Booth, Andrew Stelzer, Jasmine Lopez, Laura Flynn, and Barbara Barnett. I'm George Lavender. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.